Good morning. Yeah, I know, it's the early service. Try one more time. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning to those who are uh, joining us online. One correction for Pastor Colton. Uh, we are not continuing uh, the series, The Shalom Project. We're starting a new series. Uh, who's excited to start a new series? Anyway, yeah. I'm excited. Um, I've been uh, thinking and dreaming and mulling over this series for what feels like years. Uh, I didn't originally think of it as a series, but uh, it's something that has just been uh, percolating. And uh, it's, it's, it's very central to what we are all about at, at SunWest. And uh, it's, it's not only a new series, it's actually four, it's four series kind of in one. Uh, and so I uh, hope that makes sense as, as we go here. But it's the series, the four series are based on our vision statement, which we've changed uh, a couple of years ago, uh, which is Shalom Breakers Becoming Shalom Makers. So our mission statement at SunWest is guiding all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Our vision statement, uh, what is the picture uh, that we see if we actually do our mission together, which is following Jesus together, is that we'll see uh, Shalom Breakers Becoming Shalom Makers. Uh, this uh, the statement, though, uh, even though it's it's simple, uh, needs explanation, which is why we uh, decided to kind of really dive into this series. Um, and so, these four series is actually going to bring us uh, basically up until till Easter, uh, because the idea of shalom is that deep of a word. Uh, and so, when we were kind of discerning uh, on changing our, our vision. Uh, you know, there's lots of feedback around this word because it's like nobody uses that word. Nobody understands that word. Uh, you don't, you don't hear the shalom, uh, down, downtown in your office space. Uh, you know, maybe you do, but I'd love to hear about it if your boss comes and he uses shalom in everyday language. So we don't use this word, uh, because it's a Hebrew word. Uh, but the word has uh, so much depth to it. And sometimes when we, when we translate words into English, uh, we lose depth. And so often in the Bible, the word shalom is translated as, as peace. Uh, but when we think peace, we just think lack of conflict. Uh, the Hebrew word of shalom actually goes far deeper than peace, far deeper than just a lack of, of conflict. It actually speaks to the way that things were created to be. The way that uh, we actually all long for in our hearts, even if we can't articulate what that is. Uh, and so shalom, uh, in the Hebrew sense of the word, is the uh, union of four spheres of relationship. And you actually see this in, in Genesis 1 verse 2, where your Bible starts, and Revelation 21 and 22, where your Bible ends, uh, are the bookends to the story of Scripture beginning of the story in Genesis 1-2, the first bookend, and then the end of the story uh, that we were coming to uh, in Revelation 21 and 22. And you see the same picture at the beginning and at the end. And this is uh, all things actually living in right relationship with each other. Uh, We could call that harmony uh, with one another. It's where the story begins. It's where the story ends. And we are in the story in between. And the whole biblical story outside of those four chapters is the story of what's happening in between, the story of which we are all a part of uh, still right now. And so these four relationships, uh, when they are functioning in harmony the way that God intended and created for them uh, to work, uh, is what we refer to as shalom. It's four-part harmony. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys kind of grew up in traditional church where they sing uh, hymns and they sing four-part harmony. Anybody do that? 
Uh, I know some of you still long, long for that. Um, let's just get rid of the band and do four part harmony. And there's, there's four different, uh, melody lines or harmony lines, I guess, that, uh, are being sung together and together they kind of create this full sound. And so that full sound, this four part harmony, it's kind of what we're referring to when we talk about shalom, when everything and everybody is singing the part they were created to sing. We have this four-part harmony uh, called shalom. And so when we think about the shalom project, which we're going to go through, uh, each of those pictures in the title slide actually represent the four series that we're going to go through. So the first one, uh, we're going to talk about uh, God, God's relationship with us as humans, how we're created to be in relationship with God. The second one, uh, relationship with ourself, our identity. Uh, the third one, our relationship with each other. And then finally, uh, the fourth one, our relationship uh, in this world, what it means to actually be stewards uh, in the world that God has put us in. Uh, so we begin, though, with the first one, uh, shalom uh, with God, uh, the relationship between God and man. So we're going to spend a few weeks uh, on this one. And specifically, uh, we're going to look at the topic of worship, which we'll come back to in a little bit, but I want to spend a few weeks talking about worship because uh, worship is actually the primary uh, way that we relate to God and that God actually transforms us, as, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. Uh, and I've been around SunWest for a long time, and we have never done a sermon series on worship that I can remember since I've been here. We've never done a sermon series on worship, yet we spend half of our services when we gather together as a body uh, doing what we refer to as worship. Uh, and so it's interesting that we spend so much time doing this thing, but we never actually talk or teach about this thing. And so uh, that's where we're going to actually start for the next few weeks. Uh, our world that we live in is all about shalom, believe it or not, uh, but they're about shalom uh, outside of the context of relationship with God, worship with God. Uh, if you start to put the, these lenses, you'll start to see it in the world around you all over the place. Uh, that people are looking for identity. They're looking for identity all over the place. They're looking for identity within themselves. They're looking for identity uh, from the affirming uh, your relationships on social media or whatever it might be. But there is a search for identity going on in our world. People are wanting shalom with one another. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that we have conflict with people. Uh, you know, the last couple of years has maybe been a case study in how uh, not well people get along uh, when left to their own devices, right? There's so much conflict in the world, but yet we have a sense that this isn't right, that God didn't actually create us for this. He created us for more, to live in right relationship with each other. Uh, and so there's all these efforts to actually get rid of conflict, um, but when we actually pursue this type of peace and harmony without getting the first relationship right, our relationship with God, uh, that effort is futile. We see the same thing in our world, a remedy that people feel like that we need to fix the broken world, the environment, the corrupted systems of power that we have in our world structures, uh, and yet we are powerless to actually do that despite human, humanity's best effort. And so if you can put these lenses on for the next 12 weeks, I would encourage you to start to look at the world around you through the lens of shalom and recognize that our whole world is longing for this, whether they can articulate in that way or not. Longing for identity, longing for right relationships between humans, longing uh, for the world to be made right. Yet, we see over and over again that the neglected part of shalom that nobody thinks about, but it actually is the key to everything else, is man's relationship with God. 
And so we begin the Shalom Project by looking at this vertical relationship between humanity and God, because if this is not right, all other Shalom relationships don't work. This is the key to everything else. And we see this in the very beginning, in your Bibli- beginning of your biblical story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, man was created. And they are walking in the garden with God. They're talking with God. They're obeying the commandments of God and God's boundaries that he put on them willfully and joyfully. And so we see this picture of harmony between humanity and God. And God placed humans at the pinnacle of creation. And so he creates the heavens and the earth and the star and the land and the, the, the beasts. And, and then he creates man different than the rest of creation. The pinnacle of creation. Above creation, yet under God. And there's a certain order to creation. That God creates us, we're under him, but he's actually put us over creation. And we're unique from the rest of creation. This is articulated in Genesis 1.27 when it says that, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is referred to as the Imago Dei, which just means the image of God. In the, in the Septuagint, uh, which is just a really fancy word to say, the Greek uh, translation of the Bible, uh, the word that is used for image is the word akon. Everybody say akon. So this word is where we get the word icon from. And so if you think about an icon, you, you open up your phone and you look at an icon on your phone, you have all these apps on your phone, uh, if you have a phone, and uh, those apps uh, are an icon that represent something deeper and beyond the icon itself. And so you click the icon and that icon unlocks uh, what is behind that uh, icon. You open up the app. And so uh, to use a modern day illustration of an icon, an icon is meant to actually signify something beyond itself. It's pointing to something beyond itself, but it represents that thing uh, that it's representing, obviously. And so when we were created as the icons of God, the icons of God, the image bearers of God, God put us in creation to re-image him, to represent him, to actually point people beyond ourselves to God. So God creates us in his image. And this means a whole bunch of things. Uh, but at a very minimal level, it basically means that we were created to re-image God, to display God and represent him to the rest of the world. That was our unique role in the hierarchy of creation. And because God is love, and love necessitates choice, if you pull love out of relationships, you actually no longer have relationships. Relationships are founded on love. And so God, even though he's supreme and all-powerful and all-creator and creates all things, he actually gives humanity choice. And this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, is that we have choice, that we have power, that we have ability, that we have uh, choice in how we choose to live Uh, that will have an impact not only on ourselves, but on others, on the rest of the world. And it's critical that we understand this part of ourselves because it's it's actually the hinge to understanding what's gone on in the world. And so God gives choice to Adam and Eve in the garden, those he created in his image to be his icons, to be his representatives. 
And, and we see that God initiates, God creates, God invites, but God doesn't ever force people into relationship with him because if you force them into relationship, that would corrupt the very relationship itself. Do you understand that? that? That's why we refer to forced relationships as abusive relationships because they're actually not healthy relationships. Our God, who is holy love, holy perfect, actually gives us the ability as his image bearers to be free will beings, and that has an impact. And so we see that God gives Adam and Eve choice. And if you know the story, we know that Adam and Eve chose not to align themselves with God. They chose to step outside of God's commandments, outside of his boundaries in their lives. And, and there's a serpent that comes along in the story. And, and so there's a tree in the story, the, the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil. And God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree. And the serpent comes along and they say, did God really tell you not to eat any tree from the garden? And you see what the serpent's doing. We could do a whole sermon on that line, and we have. Uh, but he's manipulating the truth that God gave, the commandments that God gave. Uh, anyways, the response is, no, God didn't tell us we couldn't eat from any tree. He just said, not that tree. And then so the serpent kind of changed his tactic and said, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because if you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, being uh, you know, like God. The problem is they were already created in God's likeness, and so the serpent convinced them that they weren't already that which they were, that they were lacking. And so they decided to trust the voice of the serpent over the voice of God. They decided there was a better way of living than the way that God had asked them to live. And so Adam and Eve decided to ignore the boundaries that God had put in place. And this impacts their relationship with God. They are sent out of the garden. And so those icons, those acons, are actually now cracked icons, if you can think of it that way. Those mirrors that were meant to reflect God's image to the rest of creation are now cracked. And although there, there's a still resemblance between uh, humanity and God, it's broken resemblance. They no longer reflect the glory, beauty, majesty of God to the rest of creation as they were intended. They've chosen to believe in another voice outside of the voice of God. And some people actually understand their faith journey as if it begins in Genesis chapter 3 that their identity is rooted in their brokenness. But we have to be really, really clear, uh, because I I believe that it it changes a whole lot, that we need to realize that God created us in his likeness. In the image of God, he created us. That is the beginning of our story. Our identity is not one of brokenness. Our identity is one of being God's image bearers, which we have cracked through our own personal choices, through what the Bible calls sin. And so our identity is rooted in Genesis 1, but our reality is found in Genesis 3. When you say, hey, what's wrong with the world? We don't look at Genesis 3 for our, uh, for our identity, but we look at Genesis 3, we can say, okay, this is what's happened. This is what's the world that we're living in because of the choice that God's image bearers made. It's actually had this ripple effect through all of creation. Um, so our identity is rooted in Genesis 1. We're created in God's image and his likeness. Our reality is because of what's happened in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and so this begins God's salvation project, his recreating project. And, and so if you follow the story through history, God calls a people unto himself, uh, the Israelites, and he wanted to call a unique people that would be holy, which means set apart, that would re-image him to the rest of the world. He was going to bless a people to be a blessing to the nations, a people that would be his acons, that would be the icon that when other 
nations and people would look at God's people, they would see a reflection of God again. And so he establishes the covenant with the Israelites. And we see over and over again, just to summarize uh, that whole story, that uh, they try and they fail and they try and they fail and they try and they fail. And you put that on repeat throughout uh, your Old Testament. uh, And that's the story of the people of God. As God is making this covenant with them, uh, he gives them some boundaries, some commandments, and says, if you're going to be my icons, if you're going to be my representatives, if you're going to re-image me in the world, and then there's a certain boundaries and commandments that you need to live by so that you live within my will. So you need to choose to do this. As people with a free will, you need to choose to live in this way. And so the covenant that he gives them um, begins with the Ten Commandments, which uh, you might be familiar with, but the, the Ten Commandments that God gives to the Israelites through Moses begin like this. It says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. You shall not make yourself an image, an icon. You should not put any other gods before me. And the irony of this is as God was giving Moses these Ten Commandments, God's people, the Israelites, were down at the bottom of the mountain making themselves an image to worship. They couldn't wait. They couldn't wait for Moses to get back down. So they had to worship something, and so they created something to worship. And we see this theme from the beginning of Scripture to the end that humans are hardwired for worship. Humans are hardwired for worship. We we might not call it that, but it's true. Throughout history, people have worshipped all sorts of things. This is often referred to as idolatry. And, and, And so even in archaic times, people have recognized that our lives down here are somehow connected to something that is happening out there. We're dependent on other things for our well-being. And so people began to name these forces and, and they started to recognize these forces. You know, if it hasn't rained uh, in, it, in a long time, it must be raining somewhere else, and we've got to plead to the God of rain to bring rain our way so that we can have crops so that we can eat. There might be disease among the flock, and so the force that controls health must be failed. It must be angry, and so we have to appease it and worship that God so that we can have health to our uh, flock uh, come back to us. And so we see over and over throughout history that people have projected God-like qualities onto things in creation and gave their worship to it, assuming that if they worshipped it, then things would go better for them. And so we see this with the ancient Mesopotamians. They had uh, El, which is the father god. They had Sham, the sky god. They had Baal, the god of lightning. They had Yam, the god of waters. The Sumerians had different gods of fertility, there was An, the god of the heavens, Nana, the god of the moon, Utu, the god of the sun. The Babylonians had Marduk, the god of thunder. The ancient Greeks had Artemis, who was the god of hunting and the protector of small animals. I think that's a conflict of interest, don't you? Come here, little boy. Um, those animals had it tough, man. Goddess of hunting and protector of small animals. Uh, the ancient Sumerians, three to 4,000 years ago, had the goddess of beer, Ninkas. I didn't hear an amen after that one. I don't know. Uh, you can go across the ages, across cultures and societies, and people have always found 
something to worship. And then depending on how things were going in their lives, it would impact their worship. So you can see how people would start to draw the conclusions that we need to keep these forces that are out there on our side, and so we have to give more and more worship to them. We need it to rain. We need that ball of fire that's in the sky to burn uh, so that things grow, but it can't burn too hot so that things uh, die. We need the God of survival to give us the ability to procreate and make more of us. And, and so people throughout history have worshipped gods. They would offer sacrifices to these gods, to appease these gods, to these forces, to make them happy. And so you can see how this would start to develop over time. And there's a fundamental flaw that would happen because uh, if things go really, really, really well for you, maybe you had a great year of crops or your, or your flock was doing really, really well or that your, your people were thriving, well, the gods must be happy with you. And so how do we make sure they know that we're really, really grateful uh, we, you know, we worshiped and gave them this much of an offering last year. Now this year we got to give them even more. And so if things went really well, you had to give more. You had to be more dedicated. And then if things went really, really poorly, well, we must not be dedicated enough. And so we have to be more ruthless. We have to give more. We have to do more. And so what happens is if things go really, really well or really, really poorly in the world of idolatry and worship you are never, ever giving enough. And so this vicious cycle begins. If things go really well, you offer more. If things go badly, you need to give more. And so things would escalate in the world of idolatry. The prophets of Baal, three to 4,000 years ago, would cut themselves, would mutilate themselves to bleed out to show the gods how desperate and devoted they were to the god of Baal. The god of Kabbalah, 500 BC, was a mother goddess. Uh, Kabbalah means the many-breasted one, and she was eternally procreating on your behalf. And so if your crops were tripling every year, it was because of Kabbalah. In order to show devotion to Kabbalah, men would castrate themselves to show their devotion to Kabbalah. In the region of Sardis, which is now in Asia Minor, there's evidence that somewhere between four to 5,000 men castrated themselves in an effort to appease Kabbalah. Archaeologists were uh, uncovering the Aztec temple and they dug up remains of 42 children who were sacrificed and offered to their gods. If you have to offer more and more and more and you run out of stuff to give and all you have left is your family, I guess you give them too. In Inca culture, they would bury live children, suffocating their children, in order to appease their gods. And this isn't unique to those pagan cultures. In the Hebrew scriptures, we see uh, the people of God who chose not to live by God's commandments and worship the God of Moloch instead. They sacrificed their own children. Uh, the Israelites did this to, and offered them to Moloch in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And so we see people throughout history have been hardwired for worship. We find something to worship. It's actually in our DNA as people of God made to be in relationship with God, but that worship gets misdirected to the created world and other things. And I know you're thinking, hey, thanks for the history lesson, but we don't do that anymore. You know, our problem isn't that we worship too many things, it's that nobody worships, worships anything. But I would disagree. My guess is that our list of idols that we worship is longer than theirs. And just because we call them by different names doesn't mean they're any 
less real. We may not have the God of commerce, of the God of agriculture, the God of sex, or the God of the hunt, but we do have portfolios, automobiles, adult entertainment, sports, accomplishments, careers. And the extent that we go to appease these gods in worship is no less than our ancestors. And in fact, the way that it escalates and impacts our lives is no less than those uh, before us either. We sacrifice ourselves, our kids, our spouses all the time in worship of career, sex, conquest, accomplishment, whatever you want to fill in the blank. We have all sorts of idols that we're willing to sacrifice that which is most important to us. In fact, Ezekiel the prophet says this. He says, These men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. And so our mistake is we often think idols are these physical things that people create. Uh, But Ezekiel nails it because he's helping us see that idols isn't something that we actually make out here. It's something that we make in our hearts. And so what is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and you say, man, if I only had that thing, then my life would finally be complete. If I only had this, then I would be significant. If I, if I just could accomplish this, then I would finally be secure. There are many ways to describe that relationship, but the way that the Bible describes that relationship is the word worship. Our hearts deify things because we think that something else can give us significant security, safety, and fulfillment. And so we offer these idols our worship. We give them our affections. We give them our attention. We give them our energy. We give them space in our heads and our hearts until they require more and more and more of us and they take over our lives. But idols never, ever deliver. And they always require more from us than we could ever imagine. In fact, the uh, uh, prophet Jeremiah said, my people have committed two sins. And now reflect on the beginning of the, the Genesis story again. And we can see this is true. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. So we walked away from God. And the second sin is they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, they've built themselves idols. They've rejected me and then built themselves idols. I don't know if you are familiar with cisterns, but we had a cistern growing up. So I lived in a, you know, I often say I, lived, I grew up in Killarney, which is true. I spent the, the latter part of my childhood in Killarney, Manitoba, which is a small town uh, in southern Manitoba. But I grew up in an even smaller town. And actually, by definition, it's not even a town. I don't know what it's, it's like a hamlet or I don't know what it is. It's, it had eight buildings, seven houses, and a grain elevator. Uh, it was called Lena. And it was outside of uh, town the town of Killarney, the metropolis of Killarney, which had 3,500 people in it. And I remember we had this big water tank, and my dad would have to put the water tank in the back of the truck, and he would drive that truck into the metropolis of Killarney, and he'd have to fill up that thing with water, and then he'd have to drive it all the way back and then put that water into the cistern. We had a cistern room in the basement, and I was terrified of that room as a child. It was the place where my nightmares lived. I remember having nightmare after nightmare about the cistern room. 
Like it was just this terrible place, this dark place with this big tank and the you know, noise would come out of it. And it was in the corner of the house in the basement. And I'm like, what do I, like I would just go nowhere near this. And I remember having nightmares, nightmares. And, um, and, uh, and, and any of you guys remember, this is, sorry, rabbit trail. Any of you guys remember the show uh, Elf? Okay, it was like this alien, uh, but super like cuddly teddy bear type figure. You guys remember Elf? Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about. That means you're far younger than I am. But back in the day, they had a show called Elf. And, uh, and Elf was the friendliest little alien that you could imagine. And I remember instead of my dad telling me, you know, monsters aren't real, he just told me, well, Elf lives down there. <laughs> and honestly, I was like, oh, okay. And then from that point on, I wasn't scared of the cistern room anywhere. I was like, okay, Elf is hanging on my house. Anyways. Um, but I digress. The cistern room is this place that we had to keep filling up water because it would run out. And, and God is saying that people have committed two sins. They've walked away from me, and now they've created this, these cisterns to put water in, but they don't hold water, and so they have to keep filling them. And this is an analogy for worship. They have to keep worshiping other gods, other idols, expecting that this would give them living water and sustain them, but it actually never sustains them. It never, it never fulfills them. They have to keep going back to the cistern. In contrast to what Jesus said, that he is uh, living water. Okay, whoever comes to him will never go thirsty again. And so Jeremiah, as well as Ezekiel, kind of paint this picture that our hearts are idol factories. We create idols all the time. We were made to worship, and we actually can't stop worshiping. And so if we don't worship God, the question isn't, are we going to worship? The question is, what are you going to worship? Because you're going to worship something. And so all sin in Scripture is shalom-breaking, but all shalom-breaking has its foundation in misplaced worship, without exception. The reason that we don't worship God is that we've chosen to listen to another voice other than God's, to give our affection, our attention, our energy to something other than God. And so speaking of idols, uh, the psalmist writes this. He says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their nostrils. So in summary, idols can't speak, idols can't see, idols can't hear, idols can't breathe. That's what the psalmist is saying. We create these things and there's actually no life in them. And then he says this, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And there's a consistent theme that goes throughout the entire story, the biblical story, and throughout our lives, if we have the eyes to see it, is that people become what they worship, without exception. People become what they worship. The psalmist recognizes this. Those who worship idols become like them. And now think about this. It creates a cycle. If, those that, if that which we are worshiping cannot see, cannot speak, cannot hear, cannot breathe, and we give our worship to that and we become like that, what does that mean for us? We become increasingly unable to see clearly, hear clearly, speak clearly, and our very life actually is taken from us as well. We become like that which we worship. Think about the history lesson we just went through. 
Why did those people do such atrocious things? Well, they actually started to become like that which they worshipped. They stopped being able to see, hear, speak clearly, and even life itself was taken from them. And so we learn this, that worship is prophecy. What you worship forms your future. What you worship forms your future. What you worship forms your future. In 2 Kings, it said this way, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. It's not saying they are worthless. They were worthless. No, they actually became worthless because they gave their worship to something that was worthless. And so we come back to our vision statement where we say shalom breakers becoming shalom makers and right at the heart of becoming, right at the heart of our, our, our vision statement is the word becoming and right at the heart of the word becoming is worship. You become that which you worship. And so now we find ourselves in a conundrum. How do we know that what we are worshiping is God? How do we know that what we're giving our lives and our affections to is the right thing? Well, God knew clearly what he was doing in his salvation project as he was calling the people back to himself. And what did he do? He gave us his son, Jesus. And it says in Colossians that the son is the, what does it say? Image of the invisible God. What word is it in Greek? Akon, icon. The Son is the true image of God. The Son is the icon of God. The Son, Jesus, actually re-images God to us. And so we don't have to guess about what God is like. We know what God is like. And as we give God our worship, we actually become like His Son. We become like Him. Actually, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Same Idea just said differently. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate. We could, re, we could even see that contemplate the Lord's glory. We could define that as worship. We contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his acon, into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. As we contemplate the Lord's glory, as we give our affection, our hearts, our devotion to God as he's revealed through Christ, we are transformed into the likeness of God again, what we were intended to be at the very beginning. And so when we worship God revealed most fully in Christ, we become like Christ. We become transformed in his likeness. We become more fully the icon, the icon that God created us to be. And so one example of how this plays out, um, just specifically in Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, take delight in the Lord. Give your affections to God. Give your worship to God. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, now, often people, I've heard people refer to this verse, and they, they forget the first half of the verse, and they like to quote, God's going to give you the desires of your heart. That's actually not what the, the verse is saying. The verse is actually referring to the same principle we just talked to, that, that which you worship, you become like. You take on the characteristics. Take delight. The Hebrew word here means to be soft, to be pliable, to be, to be formed. As we worship God, we actually become formed. We actually become like God. And as we take delight in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. Why? Because our desires are transformed into his likeness. We want the second part of the verse without the first part of the verse. 
And then we're right back in the beginning of the garden story where we're saying, God, I want your blessings, but I don't want to worship you. And we find ourselves rejecting the very purpose for which we were created. We want to view God as a cosmic Coke machine where we just kind of put in our religious coins. You know, I went to church, I did this thing, and I'm pushing the button, but at the end of the day, what we really want is just whatever we want. We actually don't want what God wants. And what's the difference between God being a cosmic Coke machine and God being God? The difference is worship. We want God to be like a genie where he shows up and he says, your wish is my command. And sometimes we treat God like this. But actually worship changes the story for us to turn to God and say, your command is my wish. What you actually want is what I'm longing for. And we're transformed into that place through our worship. So all that to say, if we were made to worship and we have idols in our lives, which we do, how do we identify those idols? Well, we identify those idols by identifying what we love, what we trust, and what we obey. And we see multiple pictures of a relationship with God in Scripture described in in different ways. And there's three uh, very prominent ways that a relationship with God is described, this vertical relationship with Shalom. Uh, The first is the relationship of spouse. The Bible uses a marital metaphor. God should be our spouse. If we desire and delight in other things more than God, we commit spiritual adultery. Romance of success can become false lovers that promise to make us feel loved and valued. These idols capture our imagination, and we can locate these idols in our lives by thinking about what we daydream about. What do you think about when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night? What are your daydreams? We look to these idols to love us, to give us a sense of beauty, to give us a sense of significance, to give us a sense of worth. So God actually wants us to be in this relationship with him where we give him our love and our affection. But we can identify idols in our lives by thinking about the things that we give our love and affection to, that we look to for value, for significance. We can identify idols in our lives also by thinking about what we trust because a a second way the Bible describes this vertical relationship with God is that God is our savior. He's our deliverer. But we look to other things other than God to save us, to deliver us. We can look to things for personal achievement or financial prosperity to give us peace and security. Idols can give us a sense of being in control, of being right. And we can locate these idols in our lives, if you're willing to do uh, the scary work, of identifying our nightmares. What do you fear the most? What is it if you lost that thing would make your life not worth living? Idols are supposed to provide us with a sense of safety and confidence. Uh, God created us to find our security, our safety, and confidence in Him. Or thirdly, the other way we see this vertical relationship described between humanity and God is that God is our master. God is our Lord. He is our boss. And so God should be our only Lord, our only master. Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. We can locate these idols by looking at our most unyielding emotion. What makes you uncontrollably angry or anxious? Where do we feel the most guilt? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or our life becomes meaningless. So God... And humanity created to live in shalom with one another. God was intended to be our 
spouse, the one that we love, the, the one that our affections are for. He was intended to be our savior, the one that delivers us, the one that saves us, the, lump, the one where we're stuck, we reach to, and he's faithful. He was intended to be our Lord, the one that we obey, the one when there's so many different stories, invitations, and voices swirling around us, we actually listen to the voice of God and we hear the voice of God. If you don't love God and give him your heart, you will give your heart to something else. If you don't see him as savior and place your hope in him, you'll place it somewhere else. If you don't bow down before him as Lord, you will bow down and become obedient or enslaved to something else. Now, before we head into this last song, and as we begin this uh, three-week journey here, exploring worship, I would, I would invite you to take an honest audit of your heart. Are there places where you feel like, you know, you can relate actually to those Old Testament stories where people are just sacrificing and sacrificing and trying to find deliverance, significance, value, identity, and it's just taking and taking and taking from your life. It's probably because there's an idol that you've actually gone to for that which you should have gone to God for. Can we uh, actually put back up the, that one slide? The, the spouse, Savior, Lord slide. And as that slide comes on the screen, I invite you to reflect in your heart. I invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. God, is there a place that I put something or someone in instead of you? Is there idolatry going on in my heart? Because what you worship is what you will become. And we were actually created to become like God. To become like God in his likeness. So as you reflect, Lord, is there a place where we've placed our affection and our love? Lord, is there a place where I have actually put my trust into? That I'm relying on something other than you? give me significance and purpose. Lord, are there voices that I'm listening to other than yours? Am I looking at something else to be my Lord and my master? Am I being enslaved by another voice other than yours? I invite you just to take a minute and let the Holy Spirit bring these things to the surface. And take this next worship song as an opportunity to actually push aside those idols and bring God to the forefront again and saying, Jesus, you have my love, you have my trust, you have my obedience. I'm choosing to worship you. I am choosing because you gave me choice to actually come to you and worship you. I know it's easy to look out in the world around us, maybe even within your own family, within your own house. It's easy to identify what's wrong out there or around us, with ourselves, with others, with the world. And then we get busy ourselves with trying to worry about it, make everything right, but our response, in our response, only one thing is needed. 
response is to respond in worship. We were created for worship. We were hardwired for worship. We were created to actually make famous the name of God, to re-image God to the rest of the world. And when we give ourselves fully to that, what we find is we are fully ourselves. When we give ourselves fully to worship, we become fully ourselves. That is the way that we were designed and created. And we can rebel against that all we want, but we will not find the shalom that we all long for until we respond in worship. And worship happens more than just here on a Sunday. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to gather together corporately to worship, and we're going to talk about that in coming weeks. But worship is what we do 24-7. Worship is what we give our energy to, our affection to, our hearts to, our devotion to, our spare time to. And I would invite you as you leave this place of worship this morning that you would view the rest of the world as just a place to worship. That you begin to see God everywhere. That you begin to thank God for everything. That you begin to bring everything every ask to God with petition, that you would begin to create time and space and margins in your life to connect with God because you were created to connect with God. My prayer is that this series would actually launch us as a community, as individuals, to be worshipers. To take seriously our call to be worshipers. Let's, let's pray together. If you would like prayer for anything going on in your lives, we have uh, prayer teams available at the end of the service. We'd love to pray for you uh, if you're online. Um, and you'd like to receive prayer, uh, we just invite you to email uh, info at, or prayer at sunwestchurch.com and they would love to pray for you uh, and whatever requests you might have. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us. We thank you that you created us to create. We thank you that you created us to re-image who you are to the world. What a privilege that is. Lord, we just repent and acknowledge uh, that we do not re-image you very well often. That we worship other things other than you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your continual call to us to come back to you. Lord, we trust our lives to you. We trust that you would transform us into your likeness as we give ourselves wholly to you. We thank you that you are the one who loves us. We thank you that you are the one whom we can place our trust into you. Lord, we thank you that you are the one in whom, if we follow your commandments and guidance, you actually bring us life. Lord, we don't want to worship dead idols that can't speak, that can't talk, that can't hear, and that have no life in them. We give our lives to you, the author and perfecter of faith, the very source of life, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. We thank you that you are God and that we are not, but that we get to worship you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. All God's people said, amen. Be blessed. Have a great week.